Welcome, and thank you for listening to the New Day Podcast. We are located in South Kansas City, proclaiming the good news of God's grace to our region and abroad. If you'd like more information, please visit our website, newdaykc.org. We started a study, I started a study in First John, I always say we, it's me that's doing the studying, but I don't do my study without including you guys. Um, one of the things that, other things I've noticed now in, in this ripening age of mine, and I'm not trying to denigrate or talk about my age all the time, but is that one of the things when pastors are young, they tend to teach out of what God's taking them through in life instead of teaching what God wants them to give to the congregation who are going through things in life. So when I say we, I'm just not trying to say the royal we and including you in what I do during the week, but what I do during the week includes you. Does that make sense? So uh, I felt like the Lord wanted us to see this study and look at this study and where it started and about our fellowship with God and what that does. So we've past couple weeks, we started at the end of 1 John, and now I'm going to jump forward and start and get to the beginning of 1 John. So we've talked about what fellowship looks like and the meaning of that in our lives and how it's designed to produce joy. But here's a strange thing. Joy and being joyful and knowing how to be joyful has been taught so weirdly throughout my experiences of, of being in church for the number of years I have. It's a, it's a strange feeling. And uh, I've watched the most bizarre things that I could actually, there's times I wanted to mock them and make fun of them, but they were sincere, but it just got weird, you know? It, uh, um, trying to get adults to do childish things in a service to make them feel joyful like children. You're either joyous in your heart like a child or you're not. You can't do something to make yourself feel joyous. Have you noticed that? It's here, right here in the beginning of 1 John, that John lays out some of the precepts. Now remember what we said in the beginning when we started this three weeks ago about John the age that he's at in life, the world, as it were, at that time, uh, the things that were going on, that he would, he would, the Caesars that he had lived his life under, and the, the corruption that was in the world system that, that was so obvious to everybody, and that he endured. Now remember, he was, a, and I make, uh, you know, in, in looking at James Fenimore Cooper's great American novel, John here is the last of the Mohicans. In the sense of, he's the last disciple that's alive that walked with Jesus. He's someplace probably in his 90s at the time, time of this writing. He lives in Ephesus. Uh, this this. These letters that were written were written from Ephesus, but not to Ephesus. They were written to the whole church, but they were about what was going on in the church in Ephesus. And uh, you can get glimpses into that. So John lays out, unlike Paul. So when you look at Paul, like when Paul writes Romans, Paul is writing a thesis. 
he is writing the declaration of the meaning and whether you think or don't think you like theology, Paul is writing out a theological premise in the book of Romans. And he's seen air, and he's doing that. John doesn't write it that way. Um, some people who study him say John writes in circles that interlock. So John, in his, in his writing of this letter, if you think of it, he takes a concept or a precept and makes a circle out of it and talks about what's in that circle. And then he draws another circle and talks about it. And he talk, does another circle and he shows how those interlock, how they connect together. So when you're reading John, he's very hard to... Um, a lot of teachers and a lot of Bible expositors do this where they take the whole thing and break it down into its component parts. That's called deductive reasoning when you teach that way. A lot of science is taught that way. So you break down stuff to the smallest block of understanding you have. John is not teaching like that. His circles uh, interlock with each other. And so when you read 1 John, um, it's, you have to understand that he's writing in such a way that he is writing, uh, if you will, not theology, but he's trying to write precepts. Precepts are ideas that are laid out and designed to help believers. That was always John's heart. Uh, he, he sees them as a, as a grandfather would grandchildren. Think of an older man, if you will, uh, talking to his grandchildren. That's why he says, dear children. <laughs> he refers to them as, as his family members. And it's designed in his writing to help believers to aid, encourage, and establish them in a commodity that we call joy. Now, joy is a funny thing because you relate to it with rejoicing or being happy and everything. But joy, the kind he's trying to tell you this is what our fellowship is for, is uh, it's true joy. It's having an eternal joy of life. It's not silly. It's not flippant. It's not goofy. And it's not childish. Remember, he's 90-some years old, and he's filled with joy. So he's not going to do a song. And if you want joy, you can clap for it. That's not John, and it's not his view of joy here. Though that's not wrong, it can be childlike, but the joy he's talking about is something much heavier than that. <laughs> if you will, it's serious joy. Does that make it? It's, which is an oxymoron. <laughs> He's talking about something that is so joyful that it's the most serious thing in the universe. And it's the most serious thing in the universe that can become joyful in your life. So he's trying to aid us and talk about that. It's actually the joy that John is referring to is a response to a very real and dark environment that he called and we call today this world. I love the stuff of earth. Do you love, I'm an outdoors person. 
I love being outdoors. I love nature. I love the beauty of nature. Brenda and I all week have been, you know, you look at the maple trees and the sunset maple, and they just, oh. And yet, this world, John told us, and we looked at this last week, is under the sway of the wicked one. In the beauty of this world, so much seems off-wrong, off-kilter, off and uh, doesn't feel light and airy, but feels dark and heavy at times. That's what John's writing about when he says, and you can know joy in this life. So it's a joy that something's different. It's sort of going to the, how many of you have um, any Presbyterian background in you at all? Is there like a few of you? Some of you know what... Uh, a lot of you have been influenced, let me put it this way, by Reformed theology. Um, it's what's referred to today as evangelical Christianity. In when They even talk about it in politics, about evangelicals. That's probably you that they're talking about. And whether you know it or not, you have been heavily influenced by Reformed theology. All, all manners of the church, even those who rejected it, got influenced by it. So what does that mean? Well, it goes back to the way they taught. So you probably will have heard this and didn't understand what that meant. But what is, <laughs> what is the first question of the Westminster Catechism? Yes. What is the primary purpose or what is the chief end of man? What are we here for? Why, why did God do this? And what purpose do I serve on the earth? So it's tied with our identity and all that. And the answer, if you're going through the catechism, is clear and short and purposeful. To, ah, we know the question, but not the answer. Ah, there it is. Good Presbyterian. To glorify God and enjoy him or his presence forever. Why are we here? That my life would reflect who God is and that I would enjoy who he is in me on the earth. Enjoy means joy. I have, I'm here to have joy in God. So another question we could ask today is... Are you having joy? Is your life joyful? Well, no, really, it kind of sucks. <laughs> uh, because we're in a present darkness, but you have to understand, it was way dark way back then in 90 AD when he wrote this. Maybe darker than anything we're experiencing now, because now when you get a headache, you can go grab two Tylenol. Before then, and back then, when they had a headache, they suffered with it. <sighs> well, there were natural remedies. Yeah, go chew on some willow bark and see how that helps your headache. <sighs> Thank God for Tylenol, right? Here's what we can understand from this and what John wants us to see, and we'll read it here in a minute. Our, when we look at the answer to this first question, our salvation that we have that makes us different. Remember what we looked at the past two weeks. 
I am different than those who aren't saved. Not better, different. I am born again. I have the Spirit of God in me. They do not have the Spirit of God in them. There's a difference between light and darkness. And, and I don't want to reteach what we've taught the past three weeks, but it's profound. Our salvation was designed by God so that we would enjoy God forever. Here now, in the dark and nasty, and every bit as we go into eternity and the glorious light that we're going to live in that nobody really knows what it's like except the ones that are there. And I know there's stories of some of them sent back and some of those stories are profound and incredible, but still there's kind of the, what's going to happen? That's the tension that we live with here. But I believe that we're going to enjoy God, just the answer to that catechism question, forever. But most of us don't know how to enjoy Him and be joyful in Him now. They didn't in John's time either. That's why he's writing to them. So he describes it. Before we look at 1 John, though, I want you to see two things that Jesus said that are the basis for John to even write this. First one's found in John 17. This is Jesus. This is happening in the upper room. This is before he goes to the cross, and this is the stuff he taught the 12, the people in the upper room. Um, theologically it's referred to as the holy of holy of Christ's teachings it's, it's the central point it's the last stuff he wanted to say before he went to the cross and every word of it is impactful from John 13 to John 17 isn't it interesting that it was John's gospel that recorded it and then what he writes in 1 John so Jesus explains a whole lot of things to him, 13, 14, 15, 16. And he talks about what's going to happen and who he is and what that means for him. And then he starts talking to his father. So he's praying out loud in front of them and saying it to them and saying it to God. That's in John 17. He says, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He knows what's coming. He knows the dark times. He's walked through dark times and nothing could blot out the joy that he had in his fellowship with God. No matter what happened on the road, nothing took that away. And he was walking as a human being here, which seems like it wouldn't be joyful, but he was so glad to be here. Aren't you glad about that? He was setting a precedent that they may have my joy, that's his joy, Jesus' joy, fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. There's a key aspect of how we get joy. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. How do you see yourself, of the world or not? Well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, you're not. 
you were a sinner saved by grace, but I'm not of this world. Now, I know a lot of you think I'm a little bit alien and otherworldly at times. I understand that. I give you grace for that. And I agree with you. I'm not of this world. That's why the world doesn't feel comfortable to me. But that doesn't mean I don't have joy. For years, when I first started youth ministry, um, one of the criticisms even the kids had of me is, you don't smile very much. You're so serious. You, you have like, a, you know, you know uh, someone back then said, you were born an old man. You know, just, a, I had a, I don't know, I guess I had sort of a stern face, or maybe I had a stern attitude then. I don't know what it was. I didn't feel stern inside of myself. And I was really happy. I mean, you can ask Brenda, I was happy. Just a serious person. But I realized that, wait a minute, if joy is in me, then it needs to be reflected out of me. And I'm not glorifying God by being more serious about how serious God is, but by me being more joyful about how serious God is. Does that make sense? And so, I don't know, I don't get that much more anymore. And I, have a, I can have a goofy sense of humor and stuff, but it's not silly. Um, it's not any of that. It comes from a deep, harnessed joy. I am, I am immensely joyful. And I'll make that understood. So Jesus said, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. So I'm not going to pray that. I'm not going to say, God, get them out of here. It's going to get really rough. He doesn't move into escapism. He doesn't prophesy. He doesn't do any of that. I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from what? The evil one. And remember what we talked about last week about the whole earth being under the sway of the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And here comes this huge statement. Sanctify them by your truth. Now there's lots of stuff about sanctification. And again, most of you have lived your lives in... Um, what's known as progressive sanctification and that you're becoming more Christ-like each day if you don't sin. Uh, I don't buy into that and haven't for a long time. I'm not going to debate that. We've debated it elsewhere before. So I am sanctified by the truth of God who says I'm his child and that he justified me when he rose from the dead, when he paid the penalty for sin and rose from the dead, I was justified. And we won't go, go back through that in Romans. So then he says in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. That's for all of us. The way we glorify God is to live godly in this present age. To live my life in Jesus, for Jesus, as Jesus. And to let Jesus live his life in me, for me, as me. Inseparable. I am, I'm changed. So he goes on in verse 20. Let's jump to that. I do not pray for these alone. So you see, he wasn't just talking to them. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. 
All of us believe in Jesus through their word. That they also may be what? One. That they, all believers for all time, would be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. One with God. That the world may believe that you sent me. How will they know I'm in Christ and Christ is in me? Not through a campaign. Not through a display. Not through, even though they're wonderful, a Christmas program. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. We already have the glory of God. That they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you sent me and I have loved them as you have loved me. The same love that God the Father showed to Jesus is the way he loves you. Now, I love the children's songs, Jesus loves me, this I know. But here's, here's it. The Father and the Son are one. We're always one. And He's pulled you into that. And He loves you when, when the Father, if you can get this image, because we always try to separate Him. It's really hard to do because it's, it's almost a... It's so easy and so difficult at the same time. When God looks at you, He sees Christ whom he loves in you. That should, it should spark a little bit of joy in your heart. And when he looks at me, he's just not, because that's the way I always thought of salvation. Well, of course he's, after I got saved for a long time, of course he saved me, pitied me. Look at that kid. We gotta rescue that one. That one left himself is no good. <laughs> That's not how he ever saw me. It's not how he ever sees you. He loves you right now with the same love that the Father had for Jesus and Jesus had for the Father. The same love is ours every day right now. What? What are we so serious about? Seriously joyful. This is my joy, that his joy, that the joy that was in him would be in me, that I would be full. I would be filled up. Well, as soon as I get that other thing knocked out of the way, I'll be full. It's been knocked out of the way, it's just you're not living like that. Is this making sense? Now, with this, you have to go to 1 John. Now, all that other stuff. You know, it took a little while, but that was just an introduction so that you could understand what John was saying in the first few verses there. Because it, it's profound. It's the same guy, supposedly, I believe it was, writing this. So he's remembering in the gospel everything that Jesus said there. And now, 80 or at least 70 years later, probably 75 years later, he's remembering Listen to what he's remembering. That which was from the beginning, 
which we have heard, which, he is, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And he's saying God's love was always eternal and it manifested in Jesus and we saw it and handled it and it was right there in front of us. That which we have seen and heard, we could almost put a now in there. We have declared to you. We are now declaring to you. I'm telling you what this was for. Why did Jesus come? Well, not just what is the chief end of man. What was the chief end of God? That you might be one with him forever and enjoy him. That you also may have, and then he uses a strange Christian term that mostly only Christians use, that you may have fellowship with us. And truly, he's remember, he's remembering what he said in, in John 17. And truly our fellowship with, with the, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things, the things he's getting ready, he's just said, and the things he's going to say, we write to you that what? <sighs> Make your joy complete, full everlasting that you can have an understanding here the father is in me just like he was in Jesus how many of you actually think that way during the week it's a real change it's a, it's a, it's a real dramatic it's almost like repentance it's a real dramatic change to think that way it's a metamorphous change it's a, it's a Romans 12 1 and to change to wake up tomorrow morning and look in the mirror and go you're one with God today I'll, most of the time we wake wake up upside down in a sleeping bag not being able to find the zipper going oh geez never again over something stupid that we did it's an Irish joke but that was for my friend And we see our lives that way, upside down in a sleeping bag, unable to find the zipper, and God's going, I'm living in you. Have you ever gone to the mirror early in the morning, not gone, oh jeez, but really happy to see yourself? Really joyful that you're an eternal being and that your fellowship didn't go away during the night and you awoke and behold he's in you he's with you he intends to live his life in you that day today yesterday isn't this stunning this is a this is a where Paul writes in Romans 12 oh that your thinking would be what renewed it would be transformed rather than the world wants to conform you. The world cannot transform you. The world can only conform you. To be transformed means to go, what he said at the end of John, from darkness to light. Remember what Peter said. 
I have been transformed out of something and I am no longer that, I am this. And to wake up and look in the mirror in the morning and go, oh God, you're incredible. Instead of man, you got to do something with me, God. I'm a wreck. Well, your confession's wrong. You've been taught a less whole life lesson of confessing weakness and sin instead of confessing your glorious relationship to God and who you really are in Christ. When I change my confession to agree, remember, that which we are writing to you, that your joy may be filled. When I start confessing the truth about what God says about me, I'm not that old, serious Lloyd. I'm Lloyd in the presence of God filled with joy. Oh my gosh. You should all want to hang out with me all the time. And I you, because that's, that's really the next saying we'll get to you. That you may have fellowship with us and that your joy may be full. There's only one way to find that chief end and have fullness. And that's when you have a conscious fellowship with God. What do you mean? Tell yourself about it every day. Every day, start your day by believing in God and you. The God in you that has a determined factor to bring you to a just end. As Jeremiah prophesied, I know the thoughts and plans I have for you, says the Lord. Do you? We think it's wishful thinking because we're such a mess. No, it's God thinking Christ in you. He knows your end and beginning. And our life should be lived in that fellowship here and joyful in the midst of great darkness. I have a confession to make. I watch the headlines way too much. I was really disappointed in myself this morning because that weekly report thing came up on my iPhone and said how much it had increased this past week. I went, darn it. I looked at that thing too many times, half of it out of boredom, half of it out of anger. What was I doing? All I had to do was go to the mirror and go, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus, speak to my heart now. Let's go for a walk, Lloyd. Why? Because there's things that seem to easily mitigate that fellowship and rob us of the certainty of it. The enemy does that, but we do it, which means we're in agreement too often with our enemy. Are you catching that? We're agreeing with the negative darkness instead of the fellowship in the light of God. Oh. John's great theme here is he begins the letter to fellow believers. He writes from this point to the end of chapter 2 how to live in the fellowship that he just, this last sentence. How do we do it then? And 
first he, and so he starts describing, he says, there's some hindrances that can get in the way of you experiencing and enjoying what God has already given you. It's not something he's withholding and doesn't want to give to you. He's already given it to you, but there are hindrances in the way that you can't see it. And so when you can't see it, and remember how, what he's talking about, that which we have seen and handled and heard. When I can't see it, I won't believe it. If I don't believe it, it ruins my day. What do you believe in today? There was a bumper sticker years ago. It says, everybody believes in something. I believe I'll have another beer. <sighs> okay, Esau. That's living a profane life. It means nothing. Nothing. You want to believe in beer? Beer's been around a long time and it produced a fake joy most of the time. It was a curse. What do you believe? How do you relate to that? What do you tell yourself? What, what is it like? And what gets in the way of that? Guess what the first thing that gets in the way? Sin. Sin gets in the way? Yeah, but not in the way that it was taught to us. It gets in the way of this. Because look, Romans 6 teaches this about sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. So the first thing you have to do is see yourself as dead. Oh no, I have to die to the flesh daily. No, I died. No, it's, it's dead. My flesh lives... But I died to sin. How did you do that? Now, if we died with Christ, we shall believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, what's true of God is true of you. Do you declare that truth and believe it? He died, I died. He was buried, I was buried. He rose from the dead. Here's joyful Lloyd, risen from the dead. How do you, if you actually came back to life, do you think you would not be joyful? Let's look at Lazarus. We don't ever hear, get to hear the after stories. Can you imagine the people that wanted to come over his house and eat with him? What was it like? What happened? What, what, like you were dead and now you're alive. What was that like? Boy, would, I, would the conversations we're going to have in eternity. Paul, when he was talking about dying daily, he was talking about what happened. I died daily. He was talking about, and then he goes into it, he said, I was stoned. They didn't stone you to hurt you. They stoned you to kill you. They didn't throw 
pebbles are little stones at them. They picked up big rocks until they were buried under rocks so that they didn't have to bury them and touch them because they were wrong, sinful, untouchable. What? Paul, so many times. Wasn't this time, was it, God? Oh, man, that hurt. But he kept living until he wasn't supposed to. You'll keep living until you're not supposed to. And then we'll step into the joy of eternity. But I can live in that joy now before I step into it. What are you stepping into? There is a real enemy of our soul, you guys. And when, he, when we do this, sin works in this horrible way. It cannot rob me of my salvation. You say you do whatever you want? No, I'm saying quite the opposite of that. But it cannot rob me of my salvation. That's human thinking that steals my joy. My sin cannot rob me. Jesus died once for all sin. He doesn't die daily for me. He died for me. But what the enemy does is he tries to rob me of my conscious fellowship with God. What do you mean? When I sin, uh, seems to crush me to the ground all at once. Seems to take away, I go to God, but I'm not joyful. I'm going to God with fear and trepidation. I'm going to God because I think it can separate me from God. But the truth of the world is that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So if the enemy can convince you that now God's angry with you and the only way back is through confession and repentance, he's got you. Because you'll never go to God great. I, it's just really hard to do. It's really hard to go to God joyfully when you've messed up. It's also hard to go to the people we love. Have you noticed that? It's a trap. Sin's a trap. Because it steals our fellowship with God and our fellowship with each other. It's a, it's a horrible thing. And John says, don't say you don't ever sin. Of course you sin. He's saying this, but here, here's the thing. What pays the price for sin? The man Christ Jesus. That's the only thing that ever paid for it. Confession and repentance does not pay the price of your sin. Confession is for your soul to restore your joy. Go to God right away. Run to God because you don't have to convince Him through your declarations of what your sin was and how many promises you'll make that you'll never do it again and that you really feel bad about it and you're turning from it. That has no power in it whatsoever. That's called an excuse. Eh, goes the buzzer. Jesus, you died for me, and I was behaving in a way that is not who I am. Oh. 
And I don't want to lose the joy of our fellowship and I feel like I'm casting it away and I want to run right back into your arms and know that you're for me, you're with me, you're not against me, you'll never leave me, you'll never forsake me, and that you already paid the price for this. And I will live eternally joyful when I, whether I mess up or not in who you are. Now we're talking about a worthy confession. But secret, we've been taught through a misunderstanding of John's teaching that you can't have that unless you do the equation right. If sin works in that way, then this is... Give me three more minutes. You don't have a choice. I guess you can walk out. But it's really worth listening to this. Because that's why John wrote this. You have to put it in the context of what John is saying. He's saying, look, uh, if we say that we have no sin, who are we deceiving? Ourselves? Yet believers have no sin because it's not accounted to you. But he said, if you don't say you would never sin, it's a deception. I'm capable of messing up tomorrow. Today. Next minute. I am capable of that. That's the whole Romans 7 experience. I'm capable of doing, and the glorious thing is it ends with verse 26. It says, but thanks be to God for this incredible gift. And what is the incredible gift? And it goes to Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Oh, glorious. And the truth is not in us. It's not working in you. You're not confessing what the truth is. If there's any labor that we have to have, it's to confess truth of what God says about us instead of trying to draw an equation out of it and make it happen. He is, excuse me, verse 9. If we confess our sins, here's where the misunderstanding comes, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now remember John in his circles, how he teaches things. So we have taught to take this if, the conjunction if, and using it to do an equation. If that happens, then. Show me where the then is in that sentence. Is there a then there? There's no then there. So we've made this if a conditional conjunction. <clears throat> Through traditions of teachings, if we confess our sins, which means, therefore, if you make a condition out of it, that means if you don't, what happens? Is that true? No. The word teaches just the opposite. But through traditions of teachings, we've laid hold of this and accept this, that if I don't confess, I'm in trouble. Well, confession's not for God, it's for you. So you're putting yourself in trouble. In harm's way, no joy. As a matter of fact, you better be very remorseful when you confess. Instead of joyful about what Christ did, you have to be remorseful about what you did. Otherwise, it's not authentic. 
And the enemy is the thought police comes to you and starts, shame, shame, shame. Shame on you, naughty, naughty Lloyd. No, it's not a condition. He doesn't say, if we confess our sins. It would actually read better if he'd written it, if the translators had done this. Changed if to when. Don't you know when we confess our sins? It's an indicative. He's not writing the conjunction in a way that says if then. He's not creating an equation for you. He's declaring a truth. Remember him writing the circle of precepts. So we've misapplied this for years I did in my life. What did I forget? Last night. I remember the carte blanche prayers before I went to sleep. Oh God, if I did anything wrong today, please forgive me for that. And if I didn't do what I was supposed to do, sins of omission, commission, I'm going to get those right. Did you actually live that frantically? No. With my head shaking, yes. I would have never declared it that way or talked about it that way, but inside of me, that's who I was. And I wasn't who God says I was inside of me. Because my confession was based in a wrong premise and using a condition that if I somehow not only did not get it right, but if I didn't do it right after that, I'm in deep trouble and I'm going to be cast into outer darkness. Y'all being very quiet. And the shouts of yes and amen were going on. No, don't you know this is an old man talking to people he loved and cared for. Don't you know when you come and you confess your sin to God that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins? You don't have to convince him of it. He's not reluctant. He goes, that's the ninth time, bud, this week. You keep promising that it'll get better. You'll make it as you get progressively sanctified, kid. But Romans tells me I am sanctified. And he cleanses me from not only that, from all unrighteousness when I talk to him. In his presence is fellowship and fullness of joy. It's fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. It's the biggest hindrance to us enjoying that fellowship on a daily basis. Do you identify yourself with wrong or do you identify yourself in Christ? Jesus asking the question that he asked his disciples when he was actually in front of them, whom do you say that I am in your life? Whom do you say that you are in your life this week. Well, I didn't get through all of this again today. The rest of us, I think, pretty good. But here's what I'd like you to take away today. Change your confession tomorrow morning. If you've been hindered by this, I have no stones to throw at you. I was hindered for decades. I'm not putting you down. I'm trying to lift you up. Don't condemn yourself. Run into God's arms. He's for you. Not, we sang the song. And he will bless you. 
And He is for you. And He's not against you. He's working His life in you that you may have joy here. Don't let sin rob you of joy. That's what it does. Well, that means don't sin. Yeah, you don't have to. You know, you don't have to sin. You've been, you died to it. You're free from it. Live a week seeing yourself freed from sin. Such a game changer. Can I pray for you? Rhetorical question. I'm going to pray for you. I hope you receive it. God, I pray for each one of us that our hearts would be lifted up into the presence and fellowship with who you are. You are a good, good father. You care over each one of our lives, young and old, single and married, all of us in you, amazing. And that we're to have fellowship with one another in that. Oh God, let our fellowship be based in that. This week in you, just what you said, the Father in you, you in the Father, and now you in us, and us with the Father. Glorious. I declare it, and I receive it as truth into my life, now and every day. In Jesus' name. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Give each other big hugs on the way out.